justify prove to be right or reasonable justification is at the heart of all legal and political argument but at a time when argument itself is slave to appearances it is time to bring back a culture of justification justify a podcast on law and politics in india from the vidhi center for legal policy hosted by orgo sen gupta Welcome to episode 10 of Justified. This is a very special episode where we are discussing the findings of the second India Justice Report 2020. The India Justice Report has been conceptualized as an annual ranking of justice delivery in India. It covers not only courts, which we as lawyers tend to think of as the epitome of justice, but critical actors like the police, prisons and legal aid. all of whom make up the justice system in india and all of whom perform quite woefully so the india justice report is a quantitative ranking across police prisons legal aid and the judiciary of 18 states in the country it also looks at the union territories as well as four unranked states the effort with the india justice report is to provide an objective parameter on the basis of government data of what is the state of justice delivery in our country to discuss the india justice report 2020 today i'm delighted to welcome maya daruwala the chief editor of the india justice report and professor vijay raghavan a professor at the tata institute of social sciences who also leads the work of prayas which has worked for many years on prisons and correctional institutions in maharashtra and beyond thanks very much maya and vijay for joining us it's a real pleasure to have you thanks orgo great so maya i'm going to get started with you you are the chief editor of the india justice report and i was just looking at the rankings which uh, vijay you and several other organizations we have all come together and done so i find that maharashtra tops the ranking telangana seems to have risen spectacularly and karnataka seems to have fallen off its perch could you tell us a little bit more about the india justice report and what its rankings mean for the state of justice delivery in india you're right about the the rise and fall there hasn't been that much but some of it has been quite spec- spectacular for instance maharashtra punjab and uttarakhand have kept their their rankings as they were but they're not sort of brilliant in the sense that punjab is four maharashtra was always first and has remained that way and uttarakhand is at 15 lower down the ranking if you look at uttarakhand uh, madhya pradesh west bengal uttar pradesh uttar pradesh sadly has retained its its unfortunate position of always coming 18th out of the large states one of the interesting things that i found when i was looking at the statistics was that last time when we did the report in 2019 the best state out of 10 out of a marking of 10 got 5.9 or thereabouts but this time even though it's coming first again the best states get 5.7 so there has been actually a decline there's quality. a decline in relation to the last year that's right so that's a bit troubling and so for the uninitiated given the fact that we don't always deal with data and stats uh, 
tell us a little bit more about how you came up with these rankings. Well, the first thing was, of course, data. Have you got the data? Is the data then comparable? Is the data only from government sources so that we didn't want to have, uh, because all of us colleagues were working and we are all specialists, but we are all NGOs and civil society actors. We didn't want any sense of bias creeping in. So we took the we took all of the data that was available from the NCRB, status of policing, uh, from the NJDG, and so on. And then we had these many, many small indicators. How many vacancies are there? How much budget is there? What is the workload? What is the diversity? We took diversity. You know, you may say, why apples and oranges? Why diversity? But diversity, we felt, was had such an important part to play in the way that justice is delivered. So we use that as well. So that sounds quite an ambitious exercise. And so, Vijay, I'd like to just bring you in here because one of the areas that we are looking at is prisons. And prisons has always been a traditionally underfunded area in India. It's also been a, an area where we find that about 69% of inmates are under trials. So could you tell us a little bit more about the prison rankings in the India Justice Report? Yeah, sure, sure. So uh, like you already uh, said in your introduction that there has been a, uh, you know, a few surprises in terms of the rankings uh, as far as the prison pillar is concerned in the, from 2019 to 2020. And if I could just run you through some of the highlights, uh, last year, uh, Rajasthan, which was ranked 12th in the prison pillar, in 2020, it has come on top. Uh, so that's a huge jump from number 12 to number one. That's 12 Seven, out of 18 to one out yes, of Yes, out of 18 uh, large and mid-sized states. Uh, similarly, Telangana, which was thir ranked 13 in 2019, has come number two this time. Uh, Bihar, uh, which has jumped three ranks uh, from number six to number three. Uh, Maharashtra, uh, which was second in 2019, has dropped to the fourth position in 2020. And Kerala, which was number one in 2019, has gone up to uh, gone down to number five. I'm curious about what's going on here. I know Correct. that uh, as in full disclosure, I was part of the steering committee with Vijay and Maya and several other colleagues in bringing the justice report together. But for our listeners, could you tell yes. us what's going on? How does Rajasthan go yes. from 12 to 1 Actually, and I was, from yeah, 1 yeah. to 4? Yeah, I was going to come to that. Uh, so if one looks at the, uh, you know, the reasons why this is happening, uh, it's, it's looking like this. Uh, Rajasthan, which was able to kind of take its uh, rank from 12 to 1st, essentially did better as far as its budget utilization is concerned which was one of the indicators uh, on based on which the rankings are made. Uh, it also has uh, reduced its vacancies, both at the level of officers as well as at the cadre staff. And uh, another important thing that Rajasthan was able to do is somehow their overcrowding rate has reduced and their share of women in prison staff has increased. So based on these four indicators where it did better than last year, its overall ranking has really shot up. Uh, similarly, if one looks at Telangana, again, uh, we find that their budget utilization is better. They have appointed a few people, I mean, officers, both at the officer and cadre level. So vacancies have gone down and their training has increased. 
in terms of the people uh, the, the training the prison staff whom they they train this was an additional indicator that we added in the 2020 rankings uh, looking at what kind of training have uh, you know prison officers and staff undergone and we found that telangana was one of the states which was able to uh, do training of the its staff on a, a larger scale than many other states in in terms of the smaller states uh, himachal pradesh has shot up to the first rank it was earlier in the six, sixth rank among the seven small uh, states again we find bet- better budget utilization uh, you know more numbers of officers and staff being appointed uh, vacancies in medical officers have uh, gone down tremendously and training again is one thing area where they have done well so it seems uh, like doing the small yes. things right like filling up vacancies making sure that you are appointing women spending yes. that's allocated to you that's that's right that's yeah. what's going on here right that's right that's right that's right that's what precisely so and why? similarly if yeah, you sorry. see the drops yeah, uh, it's again the same reasons uh, like kerala which dropped from uh, first to fifth rank uh, we find that their budget utilization is uh, has reduced uh, you know in terms of they are not they aren't utilizing the full budget uh, which they were doing earlier uh, vacancies have increased overcrowding has increased and budgets have fallen so more or less you find that these are some of the crucial indicators uh, which are kind of impinging on the the ranking process so i think that's great and i think that's one of the main purposes of the india justice report is to talk about these nuts and bolts which make up the justice system not yes. the high octane issue of appointments to the supreme court which tend right. to dominate the headlines but yeah. questions such as budget utilization and in terms of vacancy filling so maya yeah. let me come to you uh, because vijay has given us an overview of what's happening in prisons but what we find is that the story is not consistent across the board so if we were to take the example of maharashtra which has come first in the india justice ranking now for two years in a row i'm just looking at its rankings it's first in legal aid fifth in judiciary fourth in prisons and 13th in the police so there seems to be a divergence in the way in which it's treating different parts of the justice system could you throw a little bit of light on why you think this might be you know uh, let me be a little more general than talking about maharashtra some states when you see the improvements in them or the changes in them start from a very low point and so any little effort that they make takes their ranking higher whereas other states which probably started out at a much better place in terms of general governance like i like i would say kerala for instance tamil nadu for instance punjab for instance they have to make a much larger move for them to really register improvement so right. that is one of the things that i think that even we as as the developers of this report have to look at and reexamine because statistics just tell half the story hmm. really and so does that sort of answer your question in a in a general way yeah it's always about lies damn lies and statistics isn't it <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, you know there's there's a, we we always castigate the whole system for being and it is abysmal in its in its uh, overall performance in relation to constitutional values that that the public should now be absolutely routinely be able to access usually we think of the delivery of justice as being pretty bad and indeed it is pretty bad if you haven't even reached your best state hasn't reached 6 out of 10 
then you really should be examining what's happening. But despite that, when we looked at 53 of the comparable indicators, we found that almost every state had improved between 29 and 37 of them. Little, little things, but improved. One of the main things I think we also have to talk about and we have to have to notice is that states and center are very strapped for money. There's no doubt about that. But until they start seeing justice in a cost-benefit economic evaluation sort of way and make it as important as food or, or health, they and stop looking at justice as merely controlling the population through your police, you are going to have this problem of underfunding, under-resourcing. So let's come to this philosophical issue in, in, in a bit, because I think there are some wider questions that it throws up, but I want to just continue our focus on the report for, for a little bit longer. So Maya, you spoke about the changes between 2019 and 20, and we've got a very interesting graph this year on ranking intention of, of states to do better. Now that graph shows that Tamil Nadu and Bihar have, have the greatest intention in terms of uh, doing very well uh, and West Bengal and Haryana perhaps have the worst in the sense that they, they, they've degraded. Now the question is, and I think I've had a few conversations with people in authority in some states, the question is how do states do better? And I think this is the question. So Vijay gave us an example of what can be done in prisons in order to do better. What is your general sense from the India Justice Report as to how can states do better to score higher on the on, on the scale? Well, I, I remember very much the issue of diversity. And you suddenly look at, at Bihar and its, its police have made the effort to go over five years from some small number to 23% of the constabulary being women. Coming from a state like Bihar, which is a much more traditional state, it's quite amazing. In Tamil Nadu, I believe there were several indicators that improved and so over a five-year period. So they coalesce to make the state look like it is doing much more. Vacancies are lower, judges, they've filled in more judges' vacancies. Sometimes, uh, sometimes it, it may not be in the case of Tamil Nadu, but in the case of Chhattisgarh, the disposal of cases at the subordinate courts was quite amazing given that they had such shortages, et cetera, and they cleared off a whole lot of cases. And that makes the, the, the jump. And so you see, and if you see it accumulating over, over five years, then, then you see that on looking at many indicators, there has been a jump. I think Chhattisgarh, particularly what has taken it above other states, has been this effort at clearing state the cases. No, so I think that's uh, that's actually a pretty incredible statistic that Bihar has improved its diversity significantly. That twenty three percent of the constabulary is women. It of course can and must do better, but I think we must laud the intention that it shows. So Vijay, we are of course discussing this issue on a day when Disha Ravi has finally been given bail by a Delhi court. But uh, we find that most under trials are not as fortunate and an overwhelming proportion of our prison population is under trials. You've worked with under trials and trying to reform prisons for a long time and not just with the India Justice Report. Could you tell us a little bit as to why is it that this state of affairs 
of under trials constituting a bulk of our prison population despite the best efforts of the supreme court saying bail is the rule and jail is the exception despite the jurisprudence that has been created the situation on the ground doesn't seem to change tangibly what's going on here yeah uh, that's a, a very very important question uh, you know which uh, will take i take 2 minutes to try and uh, answer that question so i think the first thing that we need to take into account is who constitutes this 70% of uh, you know india's prison population who are under trials and you would find that if you just look at the prison statistics india report more than 85% come from the scst obc and muslim uh, population so when you have a, a you know a prison population which is and if you look at it, added to that if you look at the socio economic category i mean the just the financial background you will find that again uh, more than 80% are from the really poor poorer sections of society so you are essentially talking about people who are dispossessed marginalized and come from very weak family supports and therefore uh, you know all the safeguards which are guaranteed under the law and under the constitution as well as the various uh, judgments from time to time by the apex court and the high courts their implementation at the local courts level uh, often leaves a lot to be desired a simple thing like uh, uh, the fact that any uh, under trial must be represented by a competent uh, lawyer is something that is flouted uh, routinely because and that is because of the the state of our legal aid system whereby uh, you know lawyers were supposed to be appointed through the legal aid board uh the district legal services authority which is the nodal agency for appointment of uh, legal aid lawyers uh, often the kind of lawyers who are there on their panel are lawyers who are either not interested or not competent enough and one of the reasons for that is uh, the very poor honorarium that is paid to these lawyers who are on these legal aid panels uh so therefore because they are not able to get competent legal aid their matters are not often been uh, you know say, uh, put across in a very uh, convincing manner before the courts who are so overloaded with cases that they don't have usually the the time and and take the effort to go into the details of each case which normally a good lawyer would point out to the court so typically what happens is that you know uh, these cases they just go on going from one court date to another until the trial comes up people just continue to uh, languish uh the other important point i'd like to make is the the bail system in our country which is continues to remain essentially a financial bail system so you either need to produce sureties or you need to pay cash and most of these people who are languishing in in prisons as under trials are people who don't have the kind of uh, contacts to produce sureties for them as well as the money required to pay cash if it is a, a cash bail and the the provision of personal bond release on personal bond which is there in the law and which is supposed to be used despite many court judgments uh, judges at the local level district courts they are reluctant to use the provision of personal bond because there's a fear that if you release somebody on personal bond you know they are likely to abscond from the court and not and then that will again add to the the piling up of cases in courts so, so these that, are some of the reasons that i think is a really comprehensive account vijay and thanks very much for that Uh, and uh, Maya, one of the things that Vijay is pointing to, of course, while of course the whole thing is pointing to a, a, a massive systemic failure uh, caused by a number of factors, ranging from a lack of sympathy to a lack of staff 
and a lack of personnel, uh, a, a lack of budget. But one of the things that Vijay is pointing out is that, and I'm just thinking out aloud here, that if the legal aid system could be improved in a way that under trial prisoners, particularly those from marginalized sections, could have competent legal aid as the constitution dates that they would, then in that case, they perhaps might have better a better showing in court, which might mean our judicial system might get less piled up with cases and our prisons will have fewer, likely to have fewer prisoners. Do you have any thoughts on how legal aid can step into this breach? I think legal aid has got a huge potential. And this potential, because legal aid is not only about representation, it's also about giving information, referrals, counseling, uh, as well as legal awareness. So all of these things coming together would empower the ordinary citizen to know his rights much more, which would mean that the ordinary citizen, the poor, especially the marginalized, who come into the coils of the law would not be so completely dependent and hopelessly outnumbered in terms of power because they don't have the knowledge to say anything to the judge or to say anything before that. So I think legal aid, the, the availability 24-7 of a, of a lawyer, legal aid lawyer in a police station. Now, even many African countries are doing this. So I, I'm pointing that out because usually, you know, we like to scorn these people as saying they're less developed than ourselves, etc. But they have this consciousness, and so you have legal aid right at the police station. There is a, what you call it, a duty lawyer who is there, and he is there by rote. He is also, uh, he or she is also accountable to the legal aid authority rather than to the police. It doesn't work brilliantly well, but it at least is some safeguard. The second thing that I think Vijay was very courteous in not saying is I think there's a great deal of bias. First of all, at the arrest stage, you're supposed to arrest at the last, once you have got everything on board. Then you are supposed to say, this man is no longer just a person of interest. He's actually a suspect because we have found motivation, uh, motive, we have found opportunity, and therefore we're bringing you before the judge. Instead, you pick up the person, he comes before the judge. Now, the, the Disha case is a very good one in the sense that there is no crime there. It's patently, you can say that there is no crime there. Even if there was a crime there, the, the police are just acting on the complaint of someone. They are bringing this person before the court. And the court, instead of saying, let me see if there is even a crime here. Let me see if there's an actus reus or is there a, a, any kind of thing that provides me with some prima facie case for holding this person. After several attempts and a huge amount of hue and cry, the person is out on bail. Why does the person have to be defending himself or herself against a whole system? So, and I think the with hand in hand with the bias comes the issue of accountability. If that person has lost their liberty, maybe for one day or maybe for 10 years, and you are seeing that there are people there, who, who have been there for 10 years and more. What is the accountability of the judge who doesn't do his duty right at the beginning? We simply don't know about it. We know about the accountability of the police. We are questioning the legal aid, but we're never questioning what is the magistrate doing? How is he go up the ladder? 
How is he evaluated? What is his performance? We simply don't ask this. We're just looking to see what was the share of undertrial prisoners at December 2019. Do you know that there is only one state that is, and that's Arunachal Pradesh, which is 43%. Otherwise, the rest are all over 50%, going up to 80-90%. So when you talk about... And a large number of those will be found innocent, ultimately. Exactly. They are all innocent until you make the effort to find them guilty. That's your right. your uh, conviction rates are horribly low, which may be for all sorts of other structural reasons. But here is the human being who is losing his liberty, losing his reputation, losing his family, losing his income. And you are putting him at this COVID time into the most unsanitary conditions and then wringing your hands and saying, well, we're overcrowded. So I think, Maya, this actually is a great segue to the philosophical question that you had adverted to before, which is that how do we as a society conceptualize of justice? Because what we've just discussed as it presents a, a, an abysmal picture, and it's because of a dereliction of duty at many levels, and certainly innate prejudices and biases and lack of accountability. But it's also an institutional question that we... And this reminds me of what Gandhi had said that, you know, if you don't reform British institutions, then you're going to have English Raj without the Englishman, right? So he called it English Tan. So, and we do, we have inherited a colonial police force, which is only looking to its hierarchical authorities, a colonial type judiciary, which is again looking up. Uh, and, and our institutions remain the same, which is why they are not citizen-centric. They are not people-first institutions. So when we look at justice, and Vijay, I'll come to you, because this is, a, this is a much larger question of how, as a society, we conceptualize of justice. Maya said that you know, we need to think about it in terms of, perhaps like we think about cost-benefit allocations for things. What is it that we are losing out as a result of keeping innocent people incarcerated? Uh, that might be something that, that sort of works. But how do you see it? Do, should we try and go back to an idealistic notion of justice as nyai, uh, so something that, you know, hope for the best from individuals that they will uplift themselves, or try and speak the language that is more de rigueur today of cost-benefit allocations, and this is actually what the money value of time that you're losing out because you're keeping people, your population incarcerated? You know, that's a very important question that you have asked, uh, and uh, it's, it's one that... Uh, that really needs to be answered if we call ourselves a civilized uh, society. I know there's this very well-known uh, American sociologist, Louis Wakant, uh, who talks about urban uh, marginalities in a globalized world. And he talks about the fact that how, with the shrinking of the welfare state, uh, we are now talking about uh, workfare and prison fare. Uh, workfare instead of welfare, which means, uh, you know, uh, the whole of society is now divided into two types of poor people, uh, the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. Uh, and for the deserving poor, there is workfare, which means they'll be, they will get work with conditions instead of benefits like unemployment uh, assistance, etc., which used to happen in the West in the earlier decades. And for the undeserving poor, the, the, the people who are supposedly uh, not willing to work enough, uh, you know, they are the people who will be put into uh, institutions and prisons. 
So you, you are going to have a situation now where the prison populations across the world have been rising. And apparently, according to Vaucont, it is the way by which the state maintains control, social control over uh, those populations, which are likely to create problems as a result of the rising inequality between uh, the rich and the poor, which is you know, growing day by day. So when you say, what is this idea of justice? We, we, we are clearly living in times where the whole issue of justice is getting, uh, you know, turning into two types of uh, justices, those with access to resources, and then there's justice for those who don't have access to resources. And uh, this particular group is, uh, the numbers are increasing, uh, you know, those who don't have access to resources. So these are very, very serious uh, questions which uh, are begging for answers, but uh, somehow uh, policy is not necessarily, you know, uh, moving at, at, along with this. In fact, uh, uh, you know, uh, there's this very, again, I'm quoting another uh, criminologist by the name of uh, Ian Loder, uh, who says that criminology today is a successful failure. Uh, and, and he explains what it is. He says, criminology as a discipline is flourishing today. Uh, you know, there are more criminology conferences happening across the world than ever before. More journal uh, articles being written around issues of crime and justice than ever before. But the public policy is completely not being informed uh, by this research and this, uh, you know, this, uh, the, the, the kind of debates that are going on in the academic uh, I think That's very interesting that, you know, it, it would be, a real paradox if criminal justice became an academic subject because yeah. there couldn't be a subject that's more real than, yeah. than criminal justice, at least within yeah. the law. So yes. Maya, uh, Maya, so how do you see justice? I mean, you said that we should see it in a cost-benefit way. Are you suggesting that that's the way we should go forward? No, no, I wasn't suggesting that cost-benefit is the principle on which we should do. I think it's a tool by which we can we can advocate for uh, spending more money on the justice system, analyzing how much does it cost if your case goes on for five years and more. It doesn't have to be only about liberty. It can be about how much money is stuck in, in litigation. I think that is a huge, we, we just haven't looked at the huge amounts that could be uh, active, money that could be active in development, in commerce, in, in uh, if we didn't have this kind of huge government litigation that goes on and on. Uh, and again, nobody is accountable for it. But when you talk about justice, I see it in very uh, standard terms, if you like. You talked about idealistic kind of justice. It's not idealistic to wish that the constitution is obeyed. When we as a society came into independence, we gave ourselves the constitution and we said that this is the way we are going to go. We were a stratified society, have always been, but now we want to have equality before the law. We want to have equality of opportunity. We want to have uh, parity in terms of gender. This, so there was a moment when we all felt that this is the way to go. This is how we will go towards prosperity, safety, security. But that moment seems to have receded with the recrudescence 
of the old traditional stratified society which sees justice as being your role and you cannot aspire for more. Add to that the neocon or the neoliberal way of thinking, the cost-benefit way of thinking, and then people and then now add technology to it, and people just become economic statistics or pieces of technology to be to be torn apart and to be put together again for the satisfaction of the market. And this is what people like you and I are trying to resist. That at the center of everything, there is a human being, a spiritual being, an aspiring being, and that's what we want. That's right. And that's beautifully put, Maya. And I think that's what the India Justice Report tries to do, that it tries to present some facts, but at the same time say that this is the justice system where we are not dealing with numbers, you're ultimately dealing with human beings. So Vijay, I'll let you have the last word because uh, the India Justice Report is also paints a picture of hope of how states can improve. And while philosophical questions about justice and its conceptualization will continue, the day-to-day -day of justice is often the smallest of things. So if you had advice for states, not only for prisons, but across the justice system where they could make some improvements what would you suggest? I, I, I think uh, what, what is really required is uh, uh, simple. Uh, one is uh, fill up all vacancies and increase your uh, staff to inmate uh, ratio. Uh, two is bring in specialized staff. If you really want to uh, talk about uh, rehabilitation in, in terms of what the prisons are meant for uh, and, and, and invest in legal aid. Uh, I would say these three areas as very, very important, if you will. And, and the surprising part of it is this is not going to cost too much money. Uh, you know, if you look at the budgets that our prisons and justice systems have, it is really a, a very small percentage, uh, less than some 0.0% of our, our, our GDP. So we are not talking about big amounts of money. Uh, it's a problem that can be fixed uh, and, uh, and, and there is no rocket science behind it. Uh, there, there have been years and years of uh, reports written around it. Uh, and, you know, uh, everybody knows the answers. Unfortunately, the political will is lacking. Orgo, I would add one thing, is that if you are going to have any kind of improvement in this whole justice system, you have to re-envision the police. They have to be reoriented. They have to be re-envisioned. They have to be held much more accountable. And uh, if... If they're going to be as they are today, an extremely politicized force that seems to have no, uh, uh, no initiative of its own to, go, to deal with or to go with the constitutional imperative, then I, I can't see anything improving. Your prisons will constantly be full. Your magistrates will constantly be overburdened. And these people are going to be unaccountable. That's right. And I think we can end with what both uh, the president of the Constituent Assembly, Rajendra Prasad and Baba Sahib Ambedkar had said that we now have a constitution, but it's really up to the people who will work it. So, and it, we are in a situation where people perhaps are trying, but perhaps have to try a little bit harder. We'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much, Maya and Vijay for, for joining me for this discussion today. And for all of you listening, 
uh, do look at the India Justice Report. It's available freely on the internet. Do read it and circulate it because the quest for justice begins with the smallest things. Thanks very much, Vijay and Maya. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thanks, Orgo. It was wonderful to, uh, having this conversation. Time for Clatter, our quiz for the week. Last week's question was fairly easy. We asked about the tradition by which Indian finance ministers carry the union budget in a red or black or brown briefcase, who started it and who broke it. Unsurprisingly, the person who started it was R.K. Shanmugam Chetty, the first finance minister of Indian independent India. And it was broken by the present finance minister, Nirmala Sitaraman, who carried the 2019 budget in a bahi khata or a red cloth folder. Many right answers, but the winner this time is Viraj Aditya. Congratulations, a gift voucher coming your way. Time for this week's question on justice. A 1989 US Supreme Court ruling has had a profound effect on American law enforcement. It rendered the 14th Amendment irrelevant when it comes to deciding whether a police has used excessive force. What is the name of the case and which amendment in the Bill of Rights did it primarily rely on? Tough one, but one that should be easy for all the lawyers out there. Do send in your answers to justify at vtlegalpolicy.in and stand a chance to win a thousand rupee gift voucher. Since our episode today was all about justice, justice is difficult not only in India, but is really a global problem. Leaving you with this song from the killers, called The Land of the Free, talking about how difficult it is to get justice in America. Adjourn. across my face It's just the old man and me Washing his truck at the Sinclair station In the land of the free His mother Radeline's family came on a ship Cut coal and planted a sea Down in them drift mines of Pennsylvania In the land of the free If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, follow us on Twitter at Vidhi underscore India for regular updates. We are on SoundCloud and Spotify as Vidhi Center for Legal Policies podcast. You can also listen to us on Google Podcasts or iTunes. Email us at justify at vithilegalpolicy.in to share your comments and feedback on this episode.